Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. What's really important here? How am I using my gifts? What is my genius and how can I bring it forth to bear on my family and my culture and my business? So those genius questions I think are things that we need to cultivate in ourselves as a matter of discipline. It may sound odd to think of discipline as taking some time each day to tune into what you're really all about, but it, in a way, it's just as valuable as going to the gym for an hour. You know, many people have the discipline to go to the gym for a while, but I've had it be so much harder for Busy, busy business executives, particularly to gift themselves with that 10 minutes of deep reflection every day. And that's all I ask people to start with, by the way, is 10 minutes. I don't ask them to start doing a 30 minute meditation or a 40 minute. At first, when I'm working with them, I ask them to sit there with me for 10 minutes and simply tune into their breathing. And so to do everything else, we put it aside and we just create 10 minutes to focus in on breathing. And then we might contemplate one question, like what is it that I most love about what I do in my work? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The EY Tech Connect podcast brings you candid conversations about the most pressing priorities facing tech, media and entertainment, and telecommunications companies, and provides strategic insights on the key issues that matter to them, including topics such as the top 10 opportunities in tech, the next generation of gaming, the future of connectivity and content, and the latest talent strategies. The EY Tech Connect podcast is out now. Download today from wherever you get your podcasts. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Gay, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, you know, I came across your work actually several years ago because it kept being referenced in many of the other books that I was reading. And so I read The Big Leap and I remember thinking, wow, this is really profound and, and life-changing and thought-provoking information. And then somehow through, a, you know, a series of conversations I had with other people in the last few weeks, your work resurfaced on my mind. And I thought, okay, you know, we definitely should get gay, gay on the show. I think this will be really fascinating. So, you know, given the the nature of your background and the work that you do, um, you know, I, in my mind, I see you really kind of as a combination of a social scientist and psychologist. So I want to start by asking, what social group were you a part of in high school? And how has that impacted the choices that you've made with your life and your career? <laughs> what a great question. Um, well, I was kind of a creative outsider, I guess I would say. Um, <clears throat> I could never find a group to fit into. I went to a high school that was in <clears throat> uh, Leesburg, Florida, a town of about 10,000 people. So there weren't all that many people in my high school, uh, 180 people, I think, something like that. So there weren't um, too many different groups, but I, I knew I wasn't a jock. Um, and um, there, was, there was nothing like a kind of the intellectuals or anything like that. Had there been more of them, I would have probably been one of those. But I was kind of a joker. I was a class clown. I made everybody laugh. Um, and um, uh, one, one thing just pops out in my mind from... Uh, from your question, one day I was in 11th grade um, chemistry class, and I was working on a chemi chemistry uh, process after class one day, and all of a sudden I saw three popular girls from the school approaching me in the chemistry lab, <laughs> and I was a kind of a nerd geek, um, kind of a, you know, but a funny one. 
And um, but never had I seen three popular girls even glance in my direction. And so what were these girls doing? And so they came and they stood around my little chemical stand there and said, we want to talk to you. And I said, uh, okay. And they said, a girl named Tina, a friend of theirs, didn't have a date to the junior prom. And they knew for sure that I didn't have a date to the junior <laughs> prom, too, they said. So would it be possible for me to ask Tina to the prom? And I was just absolutely blown away by that because it was something I had never considered in a million years. I don't think I'd really thought much about, you know, social kinds of things up until that very moment. I must have been 15 or 16 years old at the time. But there was this moment of realizing, wow, there's this social world out there with all these different games and rules and things like that. And I knew absolutely nothing about it. And so that's the kind of place I've been in, I was in in high school. Now, since I've, you know, like once I started writing books, and especially since my wife and I got together 38 years ago and began working together and writing books like Conscious Loving and relationship-oriented books, I've learned a lot more about how to get along with different groups of people. Uh, but I, I would say in the ability to kind of be a creative outsider and look at things from the outside has been a real gift to me because like in, in the big leap, <clears throat> I, I really, I always say it took me 30 years to write that book because I started looking at the two things that are, the book is about, which is number one, the book is about the upper limit problem and how to deal with your tendency to sabotage yourself when things get to going better. And the second thing the book is about is the zone of genius, which is how to access that part of you that will then allow you to love what you're doing and do what you love to do and are most suited to do. So the upper limit problem and the zone of genius were things I started thinking about way, way, way back decades ago, but it took me a long time to figure out how to write the book about it. And so finally, five years ago, I sat down and or six years ago, something like that, and, and wrote the book about it. And but the two ideas have been such a part of my own life, being able to kind of see from the outside when I'm working with a family or working with a couple or working with a client in a in a corporation, kind of being able to look at it from the inside and the outside at the same time has been a real gift for me. And I think being a high school outsider was um, was very helpful. <laughs> Another funny story comes to mind is that I was once over at uh, Jack Canfield's house having dinner with a whole bunch of people. And I forget, I think it might have been his birthday or something like that. So he, he lives about 40 minutes from where I live here in, uh, in uh, Southern California. And so there were a whole bunch of people there that wrote, you know, write self-help books and lots of well-known people there. We were all gathered to do something at Jack's house. And we started talking around the table and it turned out that almost all of us were kind of outcasts in high school, that um, none of us were the student body president or the chairman of the something or other club or anything like that. Uh, that we all had a little bit of outsider in us. And uh, I, I didn't even think about that until that time, that there's a real value in 
not being down in the herd, so to speak. You know, ethologists, people who study animal migrations, talk about that there's always between 5 and 10 or 11% of a herd that kind of wanders off by themselves and looks over the horizon. And obviously the danger of being in that 5 to 10% of the kind of the, the wanderers off the edge of the herd is you can get in trouble out there. There's lots of uh, um, predators afoot in uh, that world. But on the advantage side, you get to see the new territory. You get to see where new things can happen. And so I've always really, um, once I kind of got used to that, um, I think I felt a little miserable in high school being that much of an outsider. But later on, I realized I, I got a little more comfortable with it and also learned to function more as an insider. So, um, but that, that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind. Mm, wow. So many questions come from that. Uh, you, it, it's funny because I, you know, we really, when we look at the people who come to, to be guests on this show, almost all of them, I think, fall into that category of outsider in some way or another. And this is a, a really interesting pattern that I've noticed. And I really just kind of thought about it as you were saying that is this sort of outsider tendency seems to be a commonality to people, you know, across the board who seem to achieve this sort of outside success or, um, you know, sort of unusual success in different fields. And I'm, I'm curious if you think that that's almost a necessity or becomes a catalyst. Um, and if people aren't outsiders, are there things that they can do to develop the perspective of an outsider that would actually be able to be useful in moving them forward in some way? Well, I think one of the things of being an outsider is you become a keen student of eventually you become a keen student of was it what is it that the popular people are doing? What is it that the jocks are doing? What is it, you know, kind of learning to understand people's differences like you're learning a foreign language, like you're a, an anthropologist come to study a small village <laughs> somewhere where you're you're looking at things, um, you're looking at patterns. Uh, you're not caught up in the, in what's going on so much that you don't see the bigger patterns that are happening. So, um, you know, back to animal migrations again, you know, the herd has a wisdom of its own that is a lot about protection and consolidation and, um, kind of bonding together for more power and those kind of things. But those of us that have an outsider streak in us too, we need to own what our gift is, which is our gift is the ability to see patterns that other people don't see. And, you know, just like this, the pattern I talk about um, as the upper limit problem, I must have seen that in myself, I don't know how many dozens of times, before I caught on to that it was a pattern. So in other words, couples I work with, my wife and I have worked with several thousand couples over the years, and one of the things in couples relationships is they often develop a pattern that they don't even know is a pattern. Like for example, one couple that I'm thinking of right now had a pattern of getting into a fight on Friday nights, but they'd done it you know, 50 or 100 times over the years, but it had never occurred to them that it was a pattern, that it always happened on Friday night. And so in our first session with them, you know, we talk about people's issues like that. And one of the things we find about, out about is when they occur and what's going on when they occur. 
And so it dawned on this couple for the first time that they fought on Friday nights. And that's very illuminating because then we can find out, okay, what is it about Friday night that's causing the glitch? In their particular case, this might not be true for everybody, but uh, in their particular case, they both had a lot of secrets they were hiding from each other. And they were afraid of the whole weekend full of intimacy because they they might feel called upon to reveal one of those secrets. And so if they got in a fight and stayed in conflict all re- all weekend, they didn't have to talk to each other about what was really important that was going on under the surface. So the ability to see patterns, I think, is one of the gifts that we get as outsiders. So it's also true for the other um, big uh, idea that's at the heart of the big leap, which is the idea that each of us carries within us a zone of genius. And oftentimes, though we don't occupy that zone of genius, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say I have probably talked to 50 or 60 CEOs of companies ranging everything from Fortune 50 companies to smaller businesses. And the CEO has actually said something like, Oh, I wish I had more time to just sit and think. I wish I had more time. I wish I had 10 minutes that I could just go in a room by myself and tune into what's really important. Well, one of the things in my work with folks like that is to make them start having that 10 minutes or 20 minutes of deep reflection every day on what is my genius? What am I really here to do? What above all? do I want to gift as my gift to our planet and our culture and our company? So asking yourself those genius questions, we almost need to carve out some time in the course of the day and discipline ourselves to do that because there's such a pull in the business world particularly and well, pretty much any area that you're in, there's such a pull to get kind of consumed by the daily politics and the daily routine and the patterns within the business and that kind of thing. So you don't drop out of that for 10 minutes or 20 minutes now and then to say, what's really important here? How am I using my gifts? What is my genius and how can I bring it forth to bear on my family and my culture and my business? So those genius questions, I think, are things that we need to cultivate in ourselves as a matter of discipline. It may sound odd to think of discipline as taking some time each day to tune into what you're really all about. But in a way, it's just as valuable as going to the gym for an hour. You know, many people have the discipline to go to the gym for a while, but I've had it be so much harder for busy busy business executives, particularly to gift themselves with that 10 minutes of deep reflection every day. And that's all I ask people to start with, by the way, is 10 minutes. I don't ask them to start doing a 30-minute meditation or a 40-minute. At first, when I'm working with them, I ask them to sit there with me for 10 minutes and simply tune into their breathing. And so to do everything else we put it aside and we just create 10 minutes to focus in on breathing. And then we might contemplate one question like, what is it that I most love about what I do in my work? Or a genius question would be, 
what aspect of my work gives me the greatest amount of results compared to the small amount of time, the greatest ratio of results to time spent. See, questions like that go to the very depths of ourselves and ask us to tune in to what am I really here to do? What do I really want above all to contribute during my time here on earth? And so I've, in my own life, I learned to meditate when I was um, getting my doctorate at Stanford and I, and uh, almost 40 years ago now, and it was a time of intense pressure. Like I was so busy. I was just crazy busy and everybody else was too. So I wasn't alone in that, but I was trying to work at a part-time job to make money. I was, had a, my little girl to take care of at the time and her mom had left for Europe kind of suddenly and had, and then I suddenly had not only my job and my PhD going, but I also had a, a four-year-old that I um, needed to take care of. And it was so busy that seeming, it seemed like a total luxury to go to a meditation class. But I saw a poster one day on a kiosk at Stanford and I saw that they were, they were doing a meditation um, class and I went to it and it totally changed my life. And I, I truly haven't missed a day of meditation since back in the 1970s. So every day, like if you'd peek through your, I mean, three, peek through my window at 5.30 this morning, you would have seen me sitting here on the couch meditating. And I do that every day because I found that disciplining myself to do nothing is just as important as disciplining myself to do something. Because there's a great deal of something and there's always something to be done. But there's nothing is kind of a rare commodity. It's feeling the space within yourself, feeling the actual sensation of open space within yourself instead of the kind of freeway traffic traffic jam of ideas that are bouncing through your head usually, but to clear a space every day where you're getting in touch with your own essence consciousness again. It's a pretty rare luxury in today's busy world, but I really pretty much insist on people that I work with creating the kind of discipline so they can literally do nothing for five or 10 or 20 minutes or 30 minutes every day and in that space of creative nothingness, so many new ideas are born. I've, um, I've created and sold several major businesses to publicly traded companies in my entrepreneurial life, and all of those came from meditation. In other words, the idea, the little germ of the idea, jumped forth in meditation. And so um, I'm a big believer in creating that kind of like that creative nothing space where you're open to pure creativity, but not putting in any new ideas. So um, if, um, if any of our listeners today are inspired as a result of this, I'll consider it my job well done if you will take at least 10 minutes today to go in a quiet room and sit down and just ask yourself, what is my genius? What is it that I most love to do? 
what is it that when I do it, even if I only do it for 10 or 15 minutes, creates the biggest possible abundance of contribution? Wow. Okay. So many questions come from that, um, as you might imagine. And I want to come back to this because it raises just uh, probably another 40 minutes worth of questions. But I want to ask you one other question. You, you mentioned you grew up in a small town of 10,000 people. And I'm really curious uh, about the impact that growing up uh, in a small town like that had on your perspective on social relationships and social dynamics. Well, it had a huge aspect because in the I grew up in a small town in central Florida, uh, not the part of Florida that people go to when they go on vacation in Florida. (laughs) In fact, it's the exact kind of you fly over to get to the beach. But um, it was right in the dead center of the state in an area that was a lot of swamplands and a lot of citrus trees and sometimes some cattle pastures. And so it was kind of an agricultural area. Now, if you went to that area, all the pastures and stuff like that have kind of disappeared in their retirement communities and retirement villages and trailer parks and things like that uh, there. So it's a much bigger place. But in my time when I grew up there, it was largely agricultural and it was also racially segregated. So it was completely different than anything that goes on today because in the town I, I grew up in, there was one high school for the white kids and one high school for the black kids. And there were no other minorities in that time. The, the, later on, Hispanics moved after the Cuban Revolution and that kind of thing uh, all over Florida. But in, in my time, uh, back, uh, I, I was born in the mid-40s, and then I grew up there in the 50s and up until the early 60s. And so in that time, Um, everything changed in terms of racial segregation. And so I think one of the things that one of the things that I felt worst about when I was growing up was the pain of that whole maintaining that whole illusion of the whole um, illusion of of, uh, races being uh, separate and not equal uh, so I felt a lot of pain about that when I was a kid, uh, because I, I would talk to, you know, we had a, a person who would come to our house to clean it every week and another person who would um, do laundry and that kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, these these folks were more my friends a lot of times than than other people, because I saw them all the time and and got talking with them all the time. And so feeling the pain of the separation of that was uh, very difficult to deal with. And so that led me when I was a freshman in college to get involved with the civil rights movement and things like that. So fortunately, I was able to turn it into something positive. But I remember the pain of it and not being able to do anything about it because the general agreement when I was growing up is the races were completely separate. So that's just one example. Um, I think another thing to do with this particular small town that wouldn't probably have to do with anybody else is that everybody knew me. My mother was probably the most famous person uh, in the area in the sense that she wrote a daily newspaper column for the local paper and also the big paper in Orlando, Florida, which was the big town that was uh, 40 miles away. So 
uh, Orlando is where Disney World is now and that kind of thing. At that time, it was a you know a good sized city of 50,000 people. Now it's a huge city, um, but it was definitely the big city. And so my mother was known not only in Leesburg in the paper, but also in um, in the bigger city as well. And then she later on became the mayor of the town. So I think my experience of being in a small town was kind of flavored by being a um, member of a family that had a lot of power and that people knew and that kind of thing. So um, it was uh, a little bit different maybe than I would have experienced had I not had those particular kinds of influences. The positive side was it opened up a lot of doors for me, obviously. Uh, but the negative side was I never felt like I could get away with anything because <laughs> I was always constantly being watched and coached by my mother and my grandmother. My grandparents had been one of the people who had kind of founded the town back at the turn of the last century, uh, 1898-99, along in there. Um, so they were some of the original pioneers of the town and that kind of thing. So they were um, the uh, I couldn't I couldn't get away with anything because. Uh, Everybody always knew who I was, and they would report back to my grandparents or my mother if they saw me do anything uh, naughty. Mm. Wow. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The EY Tech Connect podcast brings you candid conversations about the most pressing priorities facing tech, media and entertainment, and telecommunications companies, and provides strategic insights on the key issues that matter to them, including topics such as the top 10 opportunities in tech, the next generation of gaming, the future of connectivity and content, and the latest talent strategies. The EY Tech Connect podcast is out now. Download today from wherever you get your podcasts. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, um, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that you do a lot of work with couples um, on relationships. And, and, you know, this is a a personal question. What what is it that is the the cause of our issues in intimate relationships? And, you know, if we're unable to find them or we struggle with them, um, what is the explanation for that? Like, why do people who are not in relationships have such a hard time getting in them? You know, I'm asking this for for personal reasons, obviously. Um, I'm just very curious kind of what your research and what your work over the last several years has shown you about that. Uh, yes, and by the way, um, how shall I address you? Shall I say Dr. Rao or what? No, Srini is fine. Srini is fine? Okay. Yeah. Yes, well, a beautiful question, Srini. Thank you. Um, there are three big things that crop up over and over again in tr- couples' relationships that cause problems. One is not feeling your feelings, not acknowledging your feelings not knowing when you're angry, not knowing when you're sad or hurt, not knowing when you're scared. So unfortunately, as a civilization, we've all kind of grown up emotionally illiterate because we don't, you know, nowadays there are probably classes on it in some schools, but when I was growing up, there was certainly no course in how to communicate about your feelings or how to solve a problem without making the other person wrong or, you know, things that are fundamental to life. And so most of us grow up with a lot of amnesia about our feelings and we don't know when we're scared or we don't realize when we're sad. So inability to feel our feelings causes a lot of trouble. Can't count the number of times couples have come to me uh, and one or the other of them Usually, if it's a male-female couple, it's the woman saying to the husband, you don't ever tell me your feelings. You don't ever tell me how you feel. And then he comes back and says, well, I'm not, I don't feel anything. You know, what am I going to say? And so uh, we, we all need to learn to get more transparent to our feelings. So that's one thing that really um, troubles a relationship is when there are feelings under the surface that aren't being discussed. A second thing that a lot of couples have trouble with, a lot of people in general, is just the ability to tell the truth 
simply. You know, if, if you're scared to say, I'm scared, or I'm angry, or I felt sad about that, or I don't know what to do right now, or I want to go to an Italian restaurant tonight. I don't want to go to the Greek restaurant that we always go to. You know, so just making your simple communications about what's true to the world is a skill that many of us don't learn. In fact, many of us learn the opposite. A lot of people learn that they're going to get punished if they tell the truth. That's part of their early conditioning. And so they, they keep things hidden inside. And unfortunately, life, nature will not allow us to keep hidden things inside very long. It starts making our bodies hurt and it starts troubling our relationships. So we need to make sure that we are not only transparent to what's going on inside ourselves, but we can communicate about that. So telling the truth, feeling your feelings, those are two very big things. A third thing is what actually causes relationships to get further into trouble is that some little thing will start and then both people will run for the victim position. Both people will say, wait a minute, why do you keep doing that to me? Or why don't you stop doing that? And then the other person says back, well, wait a minute, what about you? You're the one that's the real cause of this problem. And so a power struggle develops around the issue of whose problem it is. And that's, you know, that starts the blame game. And um, I'm not exaggerating, Serena, when I tell you that I saw my first couple, I think, in 1968 or 9. In all of those years since then, I would say that that issue caused problems in at least three quarters of those couples. In other words, they got into a blame game with each other that sometimes lasted generations that they had started it, but their kids were now in therapy dealing with the same issue. <laughs> and so one of the things that we need to get clear on is how to take healthy responsibility for things rather than blaming other people. And that's not an easy thing to do because not only do we have a lot of our own programming that we have to deal with from our original family lives ourselves, if you were raised in an environment where there was a lot of blame and criticism, as I was, but also now you have, you know, any day you turn on the news, you're going to hear one politician or the other blaming the other side. You never hear a politician say, you know, I take responsibility for this issue. And you don't then hear the other side say, you know, I do too. Let's work together and fix it. It's always whose fault it is. And, you know, so <laughs> now we're going to shift over, at least in, in uh, um, our own political realm. For many years, it's been the Republicans blaming the Democrats for everything. And now the Democrats are going to be blaming the Republicans for everything. And so what we need is more people who know how to take healthy responsibility. And healthy responsibility doesn't have anything to do with blame. It has to do with claiming the energy on it. You know, and when we have couples in here, it works exactly the same as it works in the political realm or in business. Each person has to say, okay, I take responsibility for creating this issue. And the other person needs to say, okay, I take responsibility for creating the issue. 
then you see you have two 100% responsible people. And then that is how you solve a problem. You can never solve a problem from the place of taking 50% responsibility. You can't say, okay, I'm going to take half the responsibility, but you got to take most of it because it's really your fault. That just keeps people locked in. And if you look at trouble spots in the world, famous trouble spots in the world, whether it's the Middle East or wherever, in some cases, each side has been blaming the other for thousands and thousands of years. And so I consider it an addiction that human beings are trying to kick at this stage of our evolution. And if uh, I have some grounds for calling it an addiction, because if you think about it, the moment of blaming somebody else, you trigger adrenaline and a burst of glee in yourself because you have, you think, identified the source of the problem. And if you can just get rid of that problem over there, everything will be fine. Well, it never works that way. And I can tell you from helping thousands of couples solve problems that the only solution comes from stepping out of the blame game and both people claiming healthy responsibility. That's one of the skills that's hardest to learn in life, but I'll tell you, you can experience a lot of good times once you learn how to claim responsibility for your life and claim responsibility for the situations that you create. Wow. Wow. Um, well, let's do this. Let's shift gears. Um, I want to really get into the, the zone of genius concepts. And, and there are a couple of questions that really arise from this idea of the zone of genius. One is, does everybody have a zone of genius? Um, two, how do you find it? And three, if this is the case, why is it that we don't educate people in our schools based on their zone of genius? And why is it that we don't train people in our workforce based on their zone of genius? Excellent. Well, let me start with the, the last one first and kind of work backwards through there. See, I think one of the reasons people don't open up more to their zone of genius and we don't teach more about it, for one thing, it's an unfamiliar concept. You know, now there's a hashtag called zone of genius on Twitter <laughs> and a hashtag called big leap. And, you know, so more and more people know about it, but uh, a lot of us hadn't even thought about that 20 or 30 years ago. And the idea of claiming your own genius, people often have barriers to that because they think, wait a minute, I'm not a genius. <laughs> uh, the other thing they, they realize is a lot of times geniuses are made to be objects of ridicule. People always talk about a, a mad scientist or, you know, the guy in Back to the Future was kind of the mad scientist. And, and a lot of times scientists mad scientists and geniuses aren't exactly easy to be around. And so a lot of us have a phobia about approaching our genius because we think it'll somehow take us out of our ability to function in the real world. I found the exact opposite. So here's where we start is at the beginning by simply asking people, what is it that you love to do? What is it about your current work or your current situation that you really love. And then we build on that. So let me, if I may, Shireni, ask you just yeah. point blank, what do you most love about your work? Well, 
I love the fact that I get to have conversations like this pretty much every day. Um, I love speaking on a stage. It's something that I feel find incredibly rewarding. I'm good at it. And um, it's just something that I look forward to every time I do it. And I, I look forward to the impact and the conversations that end up happening afterwards. And then I, I think at the core of it all, I like creating things that don't currently exist. At, at, you know, Above all things, I want to create you know things that currently don't exist or what I want to see exist in the world. Wow, I, that is so beautiful. I appreciate that because the last thing you said particularly made me really light up because I, I don't know how many thousands of times I've said it to my students that there's hardly any better satisfaction in life than bringing something into form for the first time. You know, it, it, it may resemble somebody else's, but at least you've gone inside and, you know, brought this new thing into being. And one of my mentors, Abraham Maslow, said it doesn't matter if it's a great soup or a great symphony. Just you've gone inside and you found your own unique way of expressing something in the world. And yes, yeah, so part of your genius, Serena, is to learn to stand up on stage or be in a conversation and be present to it in a way that you really allow yourself to learn and allow the other person to learn, but also you allow other people to get inspired by the conversation. So if I were kind of singling out your genius, it would be the ability to go very deep in your connections with people in a way that inspire others. Yeah, I, I would agree with that based on, on you know the conversations I've had and some of the work that I've done. Good. That's a wonderful thing to do. And do you remember when you first became aware of that genius? Um, you know, I, I think it, it was sort of a gradual awareness. I mean, part of it was a combination of external feedback from people. Um, one of the very first conversations I had with somebody when we first started the show was the co-founder of the show who said, I, I think you're tapping into something very special with your ability to draw, you know, uh, answers out of people. And I think you should stop being a writer and spin this out into a separate site and focus on, uh, you know, interviewing people more than writing, which is, you know, we joke about it now because he jokingly said that I wasn't a very good writer. Um, that was a big one. And, and then just hearing, you know, feedback over the years uh, of listening to the impact that we've been able to have on people's lives has always been really mind blowing to me. Like I'm always taken aback by hearing things. So, you know, we have parents who will tell us that they use the content from the show to homeschool their children. And I'm always really kind of, um, it, that, that is an incredibly rewarding feeling to me to know something like that is happening when it, it's those unexpected outcomes that you could have never predicted would happen with your work. I think that I'm usually really kind of blown away. And that those to me, I think really create the awareness of what you're talking about. Yes. Um, and also, I always like to tell people that there's a certain kind of energy you feel in your body when you're doing your real life purpose. You know, like when I in 1977, I, I was driving along one time and I was listening to something on the radio, some speaker saying that a good many of life's problems comes from the um, from the lack of a clear focus, a clear life purpose about what your life is really about, what you want it to be about. And as I was riding along, I realized I'd never really formulated into a good, clean sentence exactly what my life purpose was. And I remember going home and just kind of sitting down for a while and, and thinking about that. And what I came up with is that I expand in love, creativity, and abundance every day as I inspire others to do the same. And so for me, that's been 
in one way or the other, the purpose of my life ever since. And the opportunity to get to do that in whatever way I'm getting to do that, to me, is a total miracle, even to this very moment that you and I are having this conversation. I'm just blown away by the fact that I get to have conversations like this in the world with folks and that they appreciate those conversations. I remember the first time my wife and I were on Oprah 25 years ago, suddenly to realize that instead of talking to 10 people in my living room running a a couples group, we were talking to 10 million people at a time. And uh, to suddenly realize that before the day was over, 10 million people were going to hear an idea that they might not have heard about before, some of the very ideas that you and I are talking about. And, you know, I, I then after we flew out of Chicago and we went back home, the next night we were back working with 10 or 12 people in our living room again. And it really doesn't matter the venue of the form. When you're doing your life purpose, then you have access to a certain kind of energy that really has a life of its own, but it can also be used as a guidance mechanism for letting you know that you're right in the sweet spot of your purpose. So I really invite all of your listeners to keep tuning in to genius until they get that feeling inside where they know when they're operating in their zone of genius. It's a certain distinct experience that for me, I feel it as a sense of open space but kind of like a thrill in that open space, kind of like a thrill of bliss or pleasure in the middle of a large open space. And that's what it feels like to me when I'm operating in my zone of genius. When I started out thinking about this way back before I wrote The Big Leap, I think I was spending maybe 10% of my time in my zone of genius. But as I got more and more able to identify what my true genius was, I got to where I was spending 20, 30%. And I remember setting this outrageous goal of spending 50% of my time in my zone of genius. And it seemed outlandish at the time because I was still at the time a university professor and had to do a whole bunch of things I wasn't really enjoying doing like faculty meetings and long, boring committee meetings and things like that. And one of the things that university professors are absolutely geniuses at is taking a 10-minute problem and turning it into a three-hour committee meeting. And (laughs) (laughs) so uh, uh, I was getting a little bored with that. But suddenly this, um, this idea that I was going toward a goal really turned me on. And so it didn't take long to hit that 50%. measure. And then I set the goal of doing 70% of my time in my zone of genius. Pretty soon, a few years later, there I was. Now, I'm probably around the 90% mark. You know, I have to get around in the world. And I wouldn't say it's exactly my genius to get in my car and drive over to Santa Barbara to give a speech. But it's it's something I need to do to get there. And so I wouldn't say I'm a genius sleeper by any means, but I, uh, I need to do it in order to have a good life. So um, the the time that I'm awake and moving around, though, 90% of my time I'm spending in my zone of genius doing what I most love to do. And that's what I want everybody. I mean, I want to live on a planet where everybody's doing that. Isn't that a much better idea than anything we've created so far? 
Oh yeah, yeah, no doubt. That which is which is why it prompted the question of why is this not more prevalent in the workforce in our ed- and education system? I think it's fear. I think it's based on fear of genius. But uh, like any other fear, you can either get over it by jumping straight into it and breathing your way through it, or you can kind of sneak up to it in smaller and smaller doses. And if if you're not if you don't like the jump in all the way technique, just start with 10 minutes of sitting in a room by yourself doing nothing but asking yourself, what do I most love to do? The great philosopher Blaise Pascal said that all of humankind's problems come from the inability to sit in a room by ourselves for 10 minutes doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the upper limit problem. I, you know, I, I think the, the easiest sort of more practical framework to look at it through is money, um, just because it's something that I think about. You know, why do we reach, like, why do we even have an upper limit problem? And more importantly, how do you identify it and overcome it? Yes, an upper limit problem. Well, everybody has them. Uh, for example, uh, let's say you go on a diet and you start losing weight. You're eating well for a couple of days, and then all of a sudden you just got to have a quart of ice cream. And so you sabotage your diet. And I've talked to tons and tons of people who did something like that in the course of learning how to lose weight. Or you, you get excited in January, as you probably know, health club membership skyrocket. People troop down after after the holidays and they uh, join a health club. And of course, the business model, I don't think I'm telling a big secret here, but the business model of all health clubs is based on a tremendous number of people joining and very few people actually coming. <laughs> so, uh, it's an ingenious business model. Uh, the uh, the thing, though, that people do is they go down and they start exercising for a few days or a week, and they start feeling better, and then they stop going. So what happens, I think, is that because most of us aren't accustomed to letting ourselves feel really, really good, what happens is we start feeling a little better. We start feeling more energy. We start feeling more vibrance and aliveness. And we're not accustomed to that, and it brings up a fear. In fact, it brings up several fears. I can tell you the specifics in a moment. But just think of you start feeling better, and then up comes this fear of, oh, my gosh, this is I'm entering the unknown. Do I really deserve to feel this good? You know, is this okay? And then, oops, we hit an upper limit. So we bring ourselves back down. You've probably seen on YouTube or some example of, or at least heard about what um, crabs do in a bucket. They're in a, in a bucket, and if one of the crabs starts to crawl out, the other buckets will pull it back. I mean, the other crabs will pull it back down into the bucket. And so we all have <laughs> a crab and a, and a bunch of crabs in us that are trying to get free and trying to pull us down at the same time. And the force of our old programming in the in Australia, they call it the tall poppy syndrome. That's their word or their phrase for the upper limit problem. They say, don't stick your head out above the pack because the farmer will come along and cut off the tall poppy first. And Australia, of course, is, uh, you know, a lot of the ancestors of people who live in Australia, it was a penal colony for England. And so I've met lots of Australians who said, oh, yeah, my granddad came here in chains. And so... Um, in a convict 
situation in a prison in a penal colony, there's a tremendous influence in not sticking out above the crowd. Same thing if you go to another culture, let's say on the other end of the world, if you go to Sweden, you'll hear a word right away. You'll, you'll run into a word called lagom, and it means in Swedish, don't be too far ahead, don't be too far behind. Don't, don't get up, don't get down. Just stay right in the middle. Don't feel too good, don't get bummed out. Just feel okay. <laughs> so it's, a, it's a, a cultural concept that has ingrained itself. And I'm sure there are many, many others. Those are just two happen to be the ones where I've gone someplace and immediately encountered their name for it. But the, the problem has been with us for a long time. One of the biggest fears that human beings carry around is the fear that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. They have a fundamental flaw in them. And sometimes if they've gotten a lot of heavy religious programming, you know, with sin and stuff like that, they they take on that I'm fundamentally flawed aspect of themselves and think that's who they really are. It's a, it's, there's different versions of it. There's a, I'm sick or I'm not as smart as everybody else or I'm not as good as everybody else or I come from the wrong social class or I'm, you know, something that they take on as an ingrained limit. That's that feeling of being fundamentally flawed. Another one that's very, very big that I run into all the time when I go out and work with people um, is the fear of outshining other people. In other words, a lot of people keep their genius stuffed way down inside because they're afraid that if they really let it out, that would somehow they would outshine others and that would be a bad thing. So there's all sorts of different in the big leap. I talk about several different uh, fears, but just think of it really being kind of like if you press the accelerator on your car and start going forward, think of having some unconscious barrier that makes you step on the brakes, even though there's nothing to step on the brakes for. So you're trying to accelerate, and at the same time, you're stepping on the brakes. And so it's, um, it's a condition that affects everyone that I've ever worked with from, you know, CEOs of Fortune 50 companies all the way to the head of the local Boy Scout troop or the Girl Scout troop. It's an endemic problem, especially for gifted people, because, well, the folks I work with a lot of times are really successful people who are becoming super successful. And their upper limits issues are just as profound as a person who's in the eighth grade public speaking class trying to overcome the fear of public speaking. So all boiled down to fear. And so if you're going to get good at handling one emotion, get good at recognizing fear when it's present in your body and speaking openly and honestly about it. I had one of the great breakthroughs of my social life and my awkwardness around asking girls out for a date. I called a girl up that I wanted to ask out for a date. This is back in my pre-Katie years. And I used to try to mask with my voice that I was afraid, that I was scared, that I was nervous about asking them for a date. But I decided to just incorporate it into my pitch. And I said to this particular girl, I said, I'm nervously calling to ask you to go out with me <laughs> to, to dinner on Friday night. And there was this long pause, and then she burst out laughing. 
And that was a great little reward for that because I just claimed who I was. And, you know, rather than trying to kind of mask the shakiness in my voice, I just said, well, here I am. I'm nervous and I'm calling to ask you out to dinner on Friday night. So it was a breakthrough because it worked. Authenticity worked in that kind of a situation. And so at some point, most of us have to learn to risk our being authentic and really bringing ourselves forward. Um, and ultimately, the big leap is an invitation to really go deeply down into yourself and to own your genius and to take it fully out into the world. Because I want to live in a world where everybody's in touch with their genius and expressing it 28 hours a day. Wow. Uh, so two final questions for you. Um, one comes from my business partner, Brian, because he knew we were having this conversation and he wanted me to ask you, this: how do you give yourself permission to feel good all the time? Well, start with something simple, like start with 10% of the time. Ask yourself, would I be willing to spend 10% of my time feeling really good? And then see if you can get really bold. See if you can go up to 50% of my time feeling really good. So first, everything in the world of change starts with commitment. You need to make a clear, heart-centered, heartfelt commitment. If you really want to feel good all the time, first start with that commitment. That's what I did. I commit to feeling good all the time. And so it took me a while to make it happen, but it's been a long time. I haven't even uh, had a cold or a flu or anything like that since uh, 1996. I keep track of these things. And uh, so this is my 21st uh, year of being free of a cold or the flu or anything like that. So I have a real commitment to feeling good all the time. Wow. Um, well, this has been amazing. You really truly have packed this with a lot of just insanely brilliant and beautiful insights. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? The ability to open to the fullness of their potential and to bring forth that in a clear, straightforward way, in a way that serves other people. Wow. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for um, how much information and how much value you've packed this conversation with. It, it's you know easily one of those conversations that uh, I have gotten the most out of this year and probably one that I'll be revisiting multiple times. Well, good. Well, many blessings to you. Thanks for asking the great questions and particularly for giving me permission to have long answers. It's kind of a rare treat on conversations like this. I think this is something like my 2600th interview. Um, I keep track of these kind of things. And uh, I always love to be asked a new question. And I also love the fact that you gave me permission to be as long winded as I wanted to be with the answers. So it's very different than having to stuff everything into a 20 second soundbite. Well, I really appreciate that. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. The EY Tech Connect podcast brings you candid conversations about the most pressing priorities facing tech, media and entertainment, and telecommunications companies, and provides strategic insights on the key issues that matter to them, including topics such as the top 10 opportunities in tech, the next generation of gaming, the future of connectivity and content, and the latest talent strategies. The EY Tech Connect podcast is out now. Download today from wherever you get your podcasts. 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.